You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. We are going uh, to places that Jesus went during this Lenten season as we lead up to Easter. And today we're going to a place that's uh, a very sensitive spot, uh, the place of shame. Shame is something that we uh, universally can feel and experience and, and know about. We can be caught up in uh, family systems or in workplaces or a political culture that seems to just uh, exasperate shame. Uh, to think about this just for a moment, let's, let's imagine we're outside in that flower garden and uh, we're just sitting down uh, for a Bible class and we're just kind of getting started when uh, there are some intrusers, uh, some intruders that come and uh, they drag a person that's been caught in some kind of shameful act, bring the person before us, and uh, they quote scripture and says, uh, this person is to be condemned. What do you say? And that's not far unlike what happens today in the scripture that we go to now about what occurred when Jesus was speaking to a crowd in the courtyard of the temple. So let's read John 8, beginning with verse 1. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. So sitting down was a position that a rabbi or a teacher would, would take when he was about to teach God. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. It's interesting they bring the woman only, since I thought it took two people. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now you can always cherry pick something from the Bible to prove what you want to prove. Then they asked Jesus, but what do you say? What do you say? And so this morning, uh, we're going to come back to what Jesus does. But first of all, let's talk about shame for a moment. What is shame? What are some of the, the unhealthy ways that we deal with shame before we go back to how Jesus deals with it? So the English word for shame means to cover or to hide. The Greek word has something to do with turning on yourself. You're turning inwards and someone that's filled with shame you're against your own being. Hebrew means to lose heart or to lose face. You can 
be particularly in uh, Eastern cultures, and it's difficult for people to, sometimes that lose shame to look in anyone's face. But when you're, when you're ridden with shame, you lose face, you lose a sense of heart. Now, whereas guilt is about doing something wrong, shame is believing that you are wrong. See the difference? Guilt is about saying, I screwed up. Shame is about saying, I'm a screw up. There's inherently something wrong with me. Shame is stubborn. Shame is a burden. Shame is a heavy load to carry around. We can feel shameful about so many things. Something that may be minimal to someone else. You may feel like you're stuck and not moving forward in your career. You may feel like you're not providing for your family. You may feel like uh, some uh, health incapacity limits you and you feel shameful. It's amazing how shame can come on us and, and cling to us. So there's a shame that we can bring on ourselves, but there's also a shame that others heap on us, culture or society or individuals or family members. I want to share just uh, some examples of my own life to kind of differentiate between shame that is what I did and shame is what other people might heap on us. When I was a, a, a boy in school, there was a bully. And this bully on the school ground is literally would bully us. And so uh, as we got into t our teenage years, a friend of mine and I, we, we went to this guy's car who's parked out at night. We knew where he lived. And we let the air out of his tires. Not that bad of a deal, really, kind of. But you know what? When I was driving my son and my daughter around the old neighborhood, back in the farmlands. And I came to that place where that car was parked 50 years ago. I just, that shame, the shame of me stooping down to that level, that bothered me. And I just named it before my son, Jonathan, and my daughter, Alexandra. And I said, you know, this is what I did. And I'm very sorry I did that. So shame is something that's tied to some real act or something. You know, I'd been carrying that with me for years. I remember in college, um, one of my religious professors just took me to task before this upper religion course. There's about half a dozen of us in there. It's my senior year in college. And he just shamed me. Wow heaped on it. Um, and some years later, in the midst of the, the ministry, a person that had religious authority over me shamed me before about 15 or 20 other members of uh, colleagues, brothers and sisters, pastors, calling me a liar. My, my, my superior called me out. And in both of those cases, Man, I just, 
I didn't feel like that was me. (laughs) And yet the wound was definitely there. How do you deal with that? How do you handle that? You know, the heaped on shame that someone in your life puts on you. This is real stuff. It's not easy. What helped me in those cases was I had some colleagues that witnessed it and also just came to me and recognized that that's not you. So you have to kind of step out of this emotionally, differentiate yourself at times from what someone's been putting on you. Not easy to do, but very important to do. Shame is often used to control others. We put people in their place. We are living in a time, we're living in a political culture where there is so much shaming going on. When Alexander Hamilton was the first U.S. treasurer, he was someone that sparred a lot with his political enemies, Thomas Jefferson and, Tom, and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton hated each other and created all kind, a culture of just throwing things back and forth at each other. When Alexander Hamilton felt like it was important for him to admit an adulterous affair that he had some years earlier, Jefferson and Madison just raved against him. But George Washington, then the retired president and general of the United States, sent Hamilton a cooler full of wine, (laughs) words of encouragement, and a note that said, uh, you're still my trusted friend, and, and I am your servant. What was Washington doing? Not saying anything about what had happened, but saying he believed in Hamilton as a person. Friends, uh, let's talk a moment now about some biblical examples of of unhealthy ways that people deal with shame. And if you're a student of the Bible, you're probably going to like this a lot. If you're not a student of the Bible, you're still going to like this a lot (laughs) because it lets you know how relevant Scripture really is in true life stuff, okay? We'll go through this quickly. This is a list uh, that Sally Breedlove creates, and I find it intriguing, fascinating, and so insightful. So here's 10 ways not to deal with shame, okay? Adam and Eve, they sin against God. What do they do? They run away and hide, and they sow fig leaves on themselves, covering it up, hiding in the guilt. Cain, after he kills his brother Abel, goes off and builds a city for himself. Sometimes people try to overcompensate for the shame they have in their life by overly extending and overly accomplishing something that's in their name. King Saul oversteps his bounds. He does the priestly sacrifice when he's not supposed to, and he builds a monument for himself on Mount Carmel as a way of seeking the praise and the applause of other people. Sometimes that's what we do to compensate for shame. Some build and whitewash a wall. The wall is scarred, so we whitewash it with paint to cover up whatever is scarred, pretending it's not there. 
Or we uh, spread our skirts is the word of Ezekiel. What does he mean by that? Israel as a nation became unfaithful to their, to their God. They spread their skirts. They went after other lovers. Sometimes people caught in shame do more shameful acts. And you wonder to try to find some sense of identity of who she is as a person. You wonder if that was the woman's case that was caught in adultery. And then the scripture talks about leaking cisterns. What does it mean by that? It's like addictions. We, we look in our culture for things that are going to fulfill us, it's going to satisfy us, but they're like leaking cisterns. Addictions are leaking cisterns that don't hold water. And then finally, four other things. And you can see the downward progression of what happens when we don't deal with shame and we ignore it. We refuse to blush, Jeremiah says. In other words, we become a culture or a people. We don't feel anything anymore. Nothing embarrasses us. Nothing causes us to blush. And then we, we build the sense of not only feeling something, or maybe we become so hardened in our spirit that we live with contempt. We hate ourselves. And we hate other people. Jesus spoke to the next one, a religious spirit, religious people who are like whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but inside dead as bodies are dead in a tomb. Probably nothing more sad than a dead religious spirit. And then finally in Revelation, you cry for a mountain. There's just a sense of hopelessness that comes over you. Friends, shame is real, and I am so thankful that Jesus is willing to go to the place of shame. How does Jesus deal with it? Let's pick up the story again. We left him with the accusers saying, what are you going to say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this... Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And leave your life of sin. So what does Jesus do? How does he deal with this tense moment where this could go either way? I mean, they've got their stones. And stoning is something they do. What does Jesus do? Well, he gets down on the ground and he starts writing, scribbling something in the ground. What in the world does Jesus write? And why does he do that? 
Some say he might have been writing the sins of those who were accusing the woman, their own sins. Some say he may have been writing scripture. You know, it's interesting that art or the arts or music or silence sometimes can bring some, a moment where we hit the pause button. What do you do in a heated situation where you might say something that you are going to regret? Jesus hits the pause button. Jesus stops. Maybe he does it to, to hope that, that uh, these guys will chill a little bit. Maybe he does it to listen to his heavenly father because, you know, we, under, we, we think that Jesus just automatically knew what to do every moment. He didn't know what to do every moment apart from his relationship with the father. He's waiting for the father. He's dependent upon the father to tell him what to do. Whatever he's doing, he doesn't cool their jets. They just keep saying, what do you say? What are you going to say, Jesus? And at that, Jesus stands up and Jesus says, okay, go ahead and stone her. Let, let the one without sin be the first one to cast the stone. That was a dangerous thing for Jesus to say. What if they would have done it? Because they did do it. And they would do it in the future. We do it in our culture a lot. Maybe not physical stones. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Don't believe that. We have a way of stoning and throwing things, shaming people. So Jesus takes a big risk. He takes a big risk on us. People ask, how in the world does God ordain or let these things happen as happens in our culture? Well, I think God's the one that's grieving the most. God is not the powerful God that's going to make us do what we don't want to do. God is the loving, powerful God that's going to give us the opportunity to become fully human and the person that he's created us to be. I think Jesus still takes a big risk, but he holds a mirror up to us and says, okay, go ahead and do it if you're without sin yourself. And then he gets down again and writes some more on the ground. I don't know how long it took. But the first stone falls, and then another stone, and another stone, and another stone. Until one by one, the oldest first to the youngest leave. And then Jesus stands up again, and he looks at the woman. I don't know if the woman was able to look back at Jesus or not because of the shame that she must have felt. But I hope she was able to. Because if there's any eyes that you want to look into when you're carrying shame, it's the eyes of Jesus. 
And Jesus looks at her. And he says, where's your accusers? Who's left? No one, no one, Lord. And neither do I accuse you. Now go leave your life of sin. She doesn't need a lecture from Jesus. She doesn't need him to point out the shame that she's feeling. But what she needs from him is what she gets. She gets mercy and she gets this pronouncement. Go and be free of this. You know, we can shame people. We can be those kind of people. We can be those kind of religious people. Or we can be the kind of people that don't sacrifice truth but never allow truth to become condemnation. I believe this from all my heart. When God gives you insight about someone's weaknesses or faults, he does it for you to pray for them and to seek ways in which God is going to restore them. And if you've ever looked into the eyes of Jesus and you've been released of sin and guilt and shame, you want to be used by God to help someone else too. How do we overcome? How do we overcome shame? You know, I think one thing we just simply acknowledge, it's a healthy thing to be able to do, isn't it? We're a community of people that are not perfect. We're a community of people that make mistakes. We're a community of people that we screw up, but we are not a community of screw-ups. See the difference? We're a community sometimes that have done some really shameful acts, or some of us live with this, but that doesn't mean who, that's not who we are. That does not define us. We are free. But it always begins with a sense of forgiveness and a release and a confession where we all aren't pretending or covering up, but we are releasing and we are a community of faith where we can confess our sins to one another and pray for one another we can be healed. And we're a community that even practices it and reminds ourselves of it. Would you stand with me? I want us to go to Psalm 32. We're just going to look responsively at these five verses. Pay attention to these words as you read and as you listen to me in my part. Listen to the beautiful movement of what happens when we become real before God as a part of a merciful, life-giving community. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When I did not declare my sin by my, by my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my iniquity. Then you forgave the guilt 
of my sin. Jesus helps us to stand up. One of the things that we can do, friends, is individually as well, be able to go to that place of shame. I told you about last summer when I went to that place where I let the air out of the tires. Um, it's interesting that it's something that very powerful and healing to go to that place. And we've created a place here this morning where you can simply write in these sandboxes. You can go one by one and you can write a word that represents for you uh, some, maybe some shame or guilt you've been carrying for a long time. And then with this, your hand representing the hand of God, just removing that and releasing that. For as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins. So friends, as you come to this table this morning, we're coming again to the cross. The cross is the place where Jesus ultimately steps into our shame. He goes to, he goes to that place. He takes the shame on himself. And he lives us out in his ministry and his life. And this is the place where he releases us and he frees us. So I want to invite you as you come to the table this morning to, to come and be free to confess to Jesus whatever you're carrying. and Feel free to write in the sand, letting your hand be the hand of God and removing that. And leaving this place, leaving knowing that Whatever you've been carrying isn't who you are, but you are free. So God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine, that we would be for you the body of Christ, that we're redeemed by your love, that we know your forgiveness, and we become a people that's forgiven, and we express reconciliation and peace and love to others. Jesus, you are the one that broke bread with Judas who betrayed you. You're the one that washes the feet of those who deny you. And you are the one that is here this morning. Come and minister to us, free us. Pronounce your words of forgiveness and mercy to us and help us to hear and feel the release that we too can leave that old life and be the new people you call us to be. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen. Servers, would you please come? If you are someone that needs gluten-free, that is available at that table there, you may go. The ushers will come and direct you to the table. You can come and kneel at the prayer rail. You can go to the sandbox. Come and experience the mercy and forgiveness of God.